whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning to you all. Thank you so much for being here on this holiday weekend. Uh, Father Scott and his family, Tammy and Eliana, are still enjoying vacation in California. Father Scott comes back later this week, and Tammy and Eliana will join him uh, back home after that. And so uh, as they're continuing their rest and relaxing and enjoying family, uh, let's continue to pray for them, and they'll come home safely to us. So this morning... uh, I want to maybe do a little bit, help Father Scott just a little bit. If you remember over the past two weeks, he started a sermon series on the Beatitudes and I'm going to leave that for him, but maybe I can just maybe prime the pump as it were a wee bit based on our gospel reading today. So we'll see if that can happen. But I want to start off this morning with a bit of a thought experiment. And it goes something like this. If someone were to approach you and ask you, what are your the most comforting words of Jesus to you? What would your response to them be? Perhaps you could pull from the Gospel of John, where Jesus says, So with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. You could go to the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You could use the words of comfort from the prayer book. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Perhaps back in John, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Or maybe what we find in Luke, words that we would all want to hear from Jesus. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, to be sure, my small list is not exhaustive. There are so many words of comfort found in Scripture from our Lord. So if if your preferred words did not make my list, don't worry. It's all good. They still count. But it serves the purpose. What are the words that comfort us? And I wonder if we find words of comfort in today's gospel reading. Um. It's been said for preachers, they have two jobs. They comfort the afflicted and they afflict the comfortable. And I think today's gospel reading is more about afflicting the comfortable than it is about comforting the afflicted. But we can't avoid it. Now, I could have picked Romans and could preach some baptismal theology from the Apostle Paul, or I could go with Isaiah and the day of the Lord. But I'll stick with the gospel. Hard words, though they may be. But before we get there, let's, let's give a little bit of context. We're coming into the middle of a conversation in today's gospel reading. We would have gotten the beginning of this conversation last week, but for the sake of Riley speaking to us and sharing with us, we switched the gospel reading so that would be more appropriate to the theme of his talk. But first, let's backtrack a little bit, Matthew, and see, the, see where we've, what ground we've covered. Chapters 1 and 2, we get the genealogy and birth narrative of Jesus. We're very familiar with that. Chapters 3 and 4 introduce us to John the Baptist, describe Jesus' baptism and temptation, 
and then the early ministry of Jesus and him calling his first disciples. Chapters 5, 6, and 7, we should know well. That's the Sermon on the Mount. And then chapters 8 and 9, we get miracles from Jesus, the calling of Matthew, and a few teachings from Jesus, primarily dealing with the cost of discipleship, fasting, and Jesus' famous words about the harvest being plenty, but the laborers being few. And so far in Matthew's account, Jesus' disciples have not encountered any pushback or persecution, though Jesus did bring it up in his list of those who are blessed in chapter 5. Father Scott will speak more on that later this summer. And if we're reading closely, we would notice so far only five of the 12 apostles have been identified to us, Simon, Peter, and Andrew, James, and John, and Matthew. We haven't been introduced to the other seven. This is our first introduction to them in chapter 10, though they had been following Jesus from the beginning. Now, immediately before chapter 10, at the very end of chapter 9, Jesus claims that the harvest is plenty, but the laborers are few. And he looks to his disciples and says, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send out laborers. I would imagine the disciples would have been like, cool, Jesus, we'll pray for that. We'll see what comes of it. And what we get in the very next sentence, which opens chapter 10, is Jesus commissioning 12 to go into the harvest. So their prayers were answered quickly and they were the answer to the prayers. And immediately after our passage in Matthew 11, Matthew describes Jesus affirming John's ministry and his faithfulness in receiving him as the Messiah of God. Now you may remember by this point, John, John the Baptist has been put in prison. He's giving Herod and his outlaw wife a hard time. And Herodias can't stand it. So John gets put in prison. And John sends disciples to Jesus and says, ask him this question. Are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? Are you the Messiah or should we wait and look for another one? And Jesus does not scold them or scold John. Instead, he says, go and tell him what you have seen. The dead are raised, the deaf hear, the gospel is preached to those who are poor. And tell John this, blessed is the one who does not fall away on account of me. Now, the first part of our chapter, chapter 10, it describes Jesus designating these 12 to be sent out to proclaim the arrival of the kingdom of heaven, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, and cast out demons basically there to do and say all that they had seen Jesus do and say. But with this commission comes a solemn warning. Persecution will come. Jesus says, behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Beware of men. They will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. And it gets better or worse, depending on your perspective. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and a father will do the same to his child, and children will do the same to their parents. And perhaps most jarring to the disciples, Jesus tells them, You will be hated by all for my name's sake. Now at this point, the twelve might have been having a bit of followers' remorse. This is not how working for the Messiah of God is supposed to play out. 
nothing Jesus tells them sounds like the victorious and triumphant reign of God's kingdom here on earth. But Jesus tells them it must be this way. Why? Well, because no disciple is above his teacher, and no servant is above her master. If the master gets slandered, so will the servant. And that brings us to this morning's reading, which is the second part of Jesus' charge to the twelve. In today's reading, Jesus continues the hard words to them. He tells them he did not come to bring peace, but to bring a sword. It's an interesting description from the one known as the Prince of Peace, the Sar Shalom from the prophet Isaiah, gives to the purpose of his coming. No, Jesus did not come to bring immediate peace upon first century Palestine, at least not the peace that many were expecting or wanting from the Messiah. His presence would only create more conflict, more polarization, and more strife within the community of the people of God and even those outside of God's covenant community. And Jesus was okay with that, not because he enjoyed conflict, disorder, and strife, but because with his arrival and his kingdom rule accompanying it, people would be confronted with their sinful and broken ways of thinking and living. They would have to reckon with the fact that they were outside of God's way of living, and they would have to decide what their response to his call would be. As it's been said before, so let it be said again today, Jesus did not come to earth saying, let's make a deal. Let's see if you can keep living the way you've been living, but sprinkle in a little bit of me and my teaching so that you'll start living your best life now. It was actually the opposite of that. He came saying, this is the deal. Follow me and live. Anything else leads to death. So let me set up Father Scott a little bit more. That's the whole point of the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. It's Jesus' way of saying, here's the deal. Take it or leave it. And Jesus explains that his mission, his call to repent and enter the kingdom of heaven by way of him, will have the effect of dividing families, sons against fathers, daughters against mothers, and daughters-in-law, daughters-in-law against mothers-in-law. And one's enemies will not come from without, but they will come from within. Now, it's a direct allusion to Micah 7, 6, where the Old Testament prophet declares, For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother, the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. And I'm sure today among us, there are numerous examples of division based on following Jesus within our own families. And as much as I wish it weren't the case, there's division on this point in my family. And I join with many of you who pray that the division and hostility based on our loyalty to Jesus we experience would be wiped away and replaced by a unity and peace that comes from the Holy Spirit. And it's at this point that Jesus gives what could be perceived as his hardest word to his followers. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Is Jesus really demanding we love those closest to us, our own parents, our own children, flesh of our flesh, bone of our bone, less than him? Would Jesus really demand that we put him before our loved ones? 
That would seem a bit extreme on his part. Our parents took care of us when no one else took care of us. And we have done and are doing the same for our children. Is it fair or even morally right for Jesus to pit parents against children? In Luke's account, Jesus' challenge is actually put in harsher terms. In Luke 14, Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What in the world do these radical words mean? And don't be mistaken, they are radical words. But perhaps a bit of clarification is needed to get at what Jesus is saying. In Luke, Jesus is not commanding would-be followers to literally hate their own families and their own lives. And here in Matthew, Jesus is not commanding would-be followers to love him more than his fam- more than family. In both passages, Jesus is using idioms familiar to those in first century Palestine to demand a loyalty to him that rises above loyalty to those in one's own family. The message puts it this way. If you prefer father and mo- or mother over me, you don't deserve me. If you prefer son or daughter over me, you don't deserve me. And I think we could also think of this idea of being worthy as meaning something like having what it takes to follow Jesus. And Jesus' words here build on his command to his disciples in chapter 6 of Matthew to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, not second, not third. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Perhaps Jesus would say to us today, love your family as much as you possibly can and follow me above anything or anyone else. Now, the last two parts of this challenging teaching make an explicit reference to actually giving up one's life in order to follow Jesus. This is not figurative or metaphorical. New Testament scholar and Anglican priest R.T. France notes about the original hearers of this this gospel and those of Jesus, that to represent Jesus is to accept their share in the way he is treated by a hostile world. And now the lethal nature of that opposition is made explicit by the first reference in this gospel to the cross. And it comes on the scene startlingly, not only as his eventual fate, but as theirs. To follow Jesus is to embrace martyrdom. To agree to follow Jesus is to sign away all rights to a quiet life of self-determination. For Jesus to bring up the cross to his disciples would have immediately brought horror to their minds. In their context, it was the familiar form of execution for slaves and political rebels, as well as carrying a degree of social stigma when it's done to a free person. Crucifixion brought shame on the entire family, not only the individual. It was nothing short of the most disgraceful death possible. Again, R.T. France notes, And that public disgrace as well as physical suffering began not when the condemned man was fixed to the cross, but with the equally public procession through the streets in which the victim had to carry the heavy cross piece of his own gibbet among the jeers and insults of the crowd. That is the prospect Jesus holds out, to, holds out before any worthy disciple, 
a savage death, and public disgrace. Jesus himself will literally go through that experience, and he offers his followers the, the prospect of the same. Now, popular usage has sanitized the language of having a cross to bear so that its challenge has evaporated. It is not, of course, true that every loyal disciple will be a martyr, but all must recognize and accept the possibility of dying for Jesus. And many who have not faced literal execution have nonetheless known well the social stigma implied in carrying the cross behind Jesus. That last line is a reference to Simon of Cyrene, who carried Jesus' cross and would have been negatively associated with Jesus by virtue of that action. And so this brings us to Jesus' final charge this morning, and in a sense, find our life. However, that might be at the cost of the loss of the true life, which has not much to do with the physical existence, but life with Jesus on a spiritual plane, now and on the other side of eternity. To be sure, martyrdom is not the call for all of Jesus' disciples, though it would be the call for the apostles, all of them, save John the Beloved. And it's not what we see and experience here in America. But the attitude of martyrdom is for all of us. So how are we doing on giving up our lives for the sake of Jesus? How do we even do that? That we might find our lives? Well, I don't have that answer. I'm still finding out myself. But I think it might be helpful to understand that to be a martyr is to be one who bears witness. That's what the term martyr means. One who testifies or gives witness. The ultimate form of giving witness is to give witness at the cost of giving one's life over to death. Some have noted in the Gospels that Jesus was the first martyr. He came and bore witness to the Father, and he got killed for it. In John 1.8, the Apostle John says that John the Baptist came to bear witness to the light. So John the Baptist was a martyr, figuratively and literally. He would give his life for the sake of the kingdom. Perhaps a radical teaching like today's needs radical illustrations. And I think we can find at least one from Scripture and one from the early church. We can certainly learn from John the Baptist, who lost his life in order to find it. One who did not count loyalty to family above loyalty to Jesus. One whose ultimate allegiance was to the Messiah, who must increase, and not to himself, who must decrease. And I wonder for us today, is it possible that in our context, many in the American church are all too eager to pledge allegiance to the flag, but are they willing to pledge allegiance to Jesus on his terms, not their own that places self-determination and the protection of rights above the laying down of life and liberty so that Jesus will be lifted up and draw all men to him? I think we can also see this allegiance and his call this allegiance to Jesus and his call to lose one's life in the life of an early bishop of the church, St. Ignatius of Antioch, also known as Ignatius the Image Bearer. If you spend five minutes with me, you're going to hear me talk about Ignatius of Antioch. If you take the confirmation and membership course here at All Saints, you're going to read Ignatius of Antioch. And I will talk about him until you're tired of hearing about him. And that's okay. We'll still learn from him and his life and his devotion to our Lord. You see, he was a disciple of the, of the Apostle John. He's only one degree removed from Jesus. 
He lived and served in the region of Syria. He was arrested by Roman authorities and put on a ship headed to Rome to face martyrdom there. And as he was on his journey to Rome to bear witness for the sake of Jesus, he wrote seven letters to seven churches, giving his final teachings about all things related to following Jesus. For him personally, he saw his impending persecution as something he needed to embrace and the means by which he could fully offer himself to Jesus for his sake. He did not see his martyrdom as something to be avoided or stopped. In his letter to the church in Rome, he urges his hearers not to attempt to come to his rescue. He says, I am writing to all the churches and am insisting to everyone that I die for God of my own free will, unless you hinder me. I implore you, do not be unseasonably kind to me. Let me be food for the wild beasts through whom I can reach God. I am God's wheat, and I am being ground by the teeth of the wild beasts, so that I may prove to be pure bread. In the very next paragraph of that letter, he gets a bit more explicit. And I want to read that paragraph for you all. He goes on to say, From Syria all the way to Rome, I am fighting with wild beasts on land and sea. By night and day, chained amidst ten leopards, that is, a company of soldiers, who only get worse when they are well-treated. Yet because of their mistreatment, I am becoming more of a disciple. Nevertheless, I am not thereby justified. May I have the pleasure of the wild beasts that have been prepared for me, and I pray that they prove to be prompt with me. I will even coax them to devour me quickly, not as they have done with some whom they were too timid to touch. Wrenching of bones, the hacking of limbs, the crushing of my whole body, cruel tortures of the devil, let these come upon me. Only let me reach Jesus Christ. Loved ones, that is a radical perspective. I'll be quite honest, I am not with Ignatius. I'm not there. But I think he understood full well our Lord's charge. He got it. He embraced it. Because he knew by losing his life, he would find it. So what does this mean for us? As I mentioned a few moments ago, martyrdom is not what we're facing in America. Although there might be some here today who have come from other countries where dying for Jesus is very much a present reality. But since it clearly, it, since it is clearly what is in our passage today, we must consider it in our response to the call to give up our lives for Jesus' sake. Think of Peter. Right after he gets restored by Jesus at the end of the Gospel of John, Jesus tells Peter, Peter, when you were young, you would dress yourself and you would go wherever you would want. But when you are old, you will stretch out your arms and someone else will dress you and take you where you do not want to go. This was their call. It was their fate. So the question, do we have what it takes to follow Jesus? Are we truly comfortable with giving up our right to self-determination so that we might allow the way of the cross to have its full rights and demands on our lives? Now, some of you today that are here, you have this sorted out. 
and you are a valuable resource to the rest of us who are still figuring out what it looks like to give total allegiance to Jesus. And others of you here today, you're still sorting out this whole discipleship thing. You've got an idea, but need more wisdom, more teaching. And even, even others here today, you have hardly any idea what it means to follow Jesus. Self-determination is your way. Well, to those who would be mentors, please share your wisdom with us. We need it. We need to be taught by you. It's what you have to offer to those who are coming up in the faith. Please teach us the way of Jesus. To those who need mentoring, go find them and let them teach you. Open your hearts, your minds and ears to their words. Let their wisdom, which is grounded in the wisdom from God himself, our Lord Jesus, guide you and mold you. You see, it's in community and in relationship that true discipleship happens. We cannot disciple ourselves by ourselves, simply reading a book or reading our Bibles and thinking, me and Jesus and my Bible, I'm good. No, you're not. We need others. That's how Jesus designed this to work. We must rely on those who have walked further down the road with Jesus than we have. Why? Because only then will we have what it takes. Only then will we be worthy of Jesus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.